So this might be the first Slee Ricketts tradition. We'll see how consistent it is <laughs> in years to come. But uh, for, for now, uh, this is my second annual birthday bonus show. So it is, if you're listening to this on the day it's released, it's June 27th, it's my birthday. I'm 40 years old today, which means that in every meaningful arena of life, I am old, washed up, out of date, a has been and never was, a once would have been obsolete and no longer influential, a no longer target demographic, an already licked stamp, a, a chewed up piece of gum, a Krispy Kreme glazed donut dropped on a dusty floor. I am finished, except, except in poetry. In poetry, I am now finally, officially a young poet. In the poetry world, until you are 30, you are a juvenile. From 30 to 40, you are emerging. Uh, at 40, you become a young poet. And from, you know, maybe 50, 55, it depends, but from like 55 on, you're a living poet. Uh, and then from death till like, uh, you know, 50 to 100 years after your death, you're a contemporary poet. So you really have quite a, quite a long career. Uh, it's one of the benefits of not having any actual benefits in your career is that you get to continue enjoying them uh, well after most people would well well after your heyday would have already passed in most other fields so uh happy birthday to me i'm a young poet it's good to be young uh, i wanted to want to share a couple things with you today so first i i recently read beowulf again so i'd read the haney uh translation years ago and and loved it really enjoyed it and then more recently i read the burton raffle translation, which is terrific. It's really, really good. Uh, and I was surprised by how well it all held together. I think I last time I read Beowulf, I'd read it, I read it right after reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I think I was, I was sort of, it felt to me like a, I was very aware of the, the less developed, less artistically mythologically unified vision of the world that the that the epic had but I, you know i think it actually it, it holds together quite well there's a lot more thematic unity there's a lot more uh care uh, like continuity of character than i'd thought and what part of what surprised me rereading it was that it seemed to me that you know in a in a poem most famously about a guy slaying monsters Right, uh, Beowulf kills three monsters. It's really that the the three monsters he kills make up the the shape of the poem as a as a whole. There, he kills Grendel, he kills Grendel's mother, and then at the end of his life, he kills a dragon. Uh, and and for a poem that is largely about monster slaying, the thing that is maybe the weakest in it, the thing that it it, it it's its softest spot as a piece of literature is its depiction of violence. Uh, the violence itself, the actual fights, the actual killings are, are often the clumsiest, most confusing parts of the story. There's a bit early on where Grendel picks up 30 men in one hand. And then that same hand, Beowulf, a, <laughs> a you know, large and strong, but still single human man, 
pins the fingers of that hand back and holds them tight in such a way as to uh, cripple Grendel in mean, the same hand that picked up 30 men at once. It's just the physics of it are really clumsy. Uh, he he cuts off Grendel's mother's head underwater where he's been swimming for two or three hours without coming up for air. And he's able to swing a sword and chop her head off. But then the, the acid from uh, cutting off Grendel's head after Grendel is already dead, the acid from Grendel's blood eats away the sword, but Grendel's mother's blood didn't eat it away. And the, the whole thing is very confusing. Um, even the the dragon at the end, which is, you know, by my lights, it's the best of the fights. It's the fight with the dragon. It's the most moving of them. Uh, but he, you know, this is a dragon we're told at one point is 50 feet long. It's It breathes fire so powerfully that it engulfs his his whole shield and his whole body and it melts his, it melts the iron of his helmet to his, the skin of his face. Uh, but then when he's bitten in the neck by the dragon, <laughs> this 50 foot dragon with terrifying fire breathe, you know, with, with, with can, they can breathe fire and can, you know, snap up whole, uh, sheep and cows and torch, uh, uh, villages and slaughter, you know, hundreds of villagers. The same dragon, when it bites, it bites Beowulf on the neck. And then what kills him is the venom from the bite. So just like the proportions are crazy. The physics are all cattywampus. And in many cases, the actual fights are sort of whizzed through. But what, what the Beowulf poet is great at, what he really captures beautifully is not so much the violence itself as the stakes of the violence, right? What, what is, what it matters, why it counts when somebody is killed or not killed, when someone goes into battle uh, like Wiglaf, Beowulf's one loyal servant at the end, or, or flees and abandons him like all of his other warriors do in that last fight. Um, that's, what the, the, that's where the poetry of Beowulf really excels. Uh, there's a lot of enumeration of treasure because the stakes, you know, the, the the price of battle and the reward for it in most cases is some kind of treasure. And the enumeration of the different treasures and their provenance, right, where they came from. Because every helmet, every sword in a preliterate culture, in a war-based culture, uh, is history. And so all of that is really really beautifully and movingly depicted. And I wanted to read just quickly a little passage because I thought, I thought like this really captures how, how poignant the depictions of the, the terms of battle, the stakes of battle, more so than the battle itself are in this poem. Yeah, everybody's, it's funny. It's, it's very much a like everybody gets paid kind of poem. Like your, 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 your courage is repaid by your, your friend's willingness to fight for you. Fighting battle is often the only reason that people are able to see each other. It's sort of the only valid excuse for traveling across the sea. Uh, Beowulf tells um, Hrothgar, if I hear from across the ocean that your neighbors have threatened you with war or oppressed you as enemies once oppressed you here, I will bring a thousand warriors, a thousand armed geats to protect your throne. The old king kissed him, held that best of all warriors by the shoulder and wept, unable to hold back his tears. Gray and wise, he knew how slim were his chances of ever greeting Beowulf again. 
but seeing his face, he was forced to hope. And then on the way out of town, he stops and this, you know, he, even the guy who, who saw his men come up to the, the shore and he, he's, and who waved him in, who said, all right, you go, you go ahead. Even that watchman who watched over the boat while he was gone, Beowulf rewarded the boat's watchman who had stayed behind with a sword that had hammered gold wound on its handle. The weapon brought him honor, right? It's uh, every, every interaction is marked by some artifact, but this was... This was my favorite passage. Yeah, okay. So this is a story about one of Beowulf's in-laws. Um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of little little side narratives where we're told about somebody who was a good king or a bad king or went, in, went into battle bravely or foolishly. And so this is, this is the story of Herbald. Uh, Herbald was the oldest son of Hrethel. Herbald died a horrible death, killed while hunting. Hathkin, his brother, stretched his horn-tipped bow, sent an arrow flying, but missed his mark and hit Herbald instead, found him with a bloody point and pierced him through. The crime was great, the guilt was plain, but nothing could be done. No vengeance, no death to repay that death, no punishment, nothing. So one son of this king killed his other son by accident while hunting, total accident. And the guilty party, right? This is this is a culture in which the wear guild, right? The man price is a significant element of justice. There is some sense that that all deaths can be balanced, all rights can be, all wrongs can be righted. I almost said all wrongs can, all rights can be wronged. That's also true, I guess. Uh, but this is a case in which there's no part of what makes this loss, the the king losing his son, which you know in a in a in a, a, a warlike culture is something that's bound to happen pretty frequently. Uh, one way or another. But part of what makes this loss so so painful is that he can't answer it in any way because the person who killed his son is his other son and it was an accident. So then there's this wonderful epic simile here where Beowulf compares the king's loss of one son at the hands of another son in an accident, in a hunting accident. He compares that loss to the loss that a, an old man might feel seeing his son hanged justly for a crime. So with the graybeard whose son sins against the king and is hanged. He stands watching his child swing on the gallows, lamenting, helpless, while his flesh and blood hangs for the raven to pluck. He can raise his voice in sorrow, but revenge is impossible. And every morning he remembers how his son died and despairs. No son to come matters, no future heir, to a father forced to live through such misery. The place where his son once dwelled before death compelled him to journey away is a windy wasteland, empty, cheerless. The childless father shudders, seeing it. So riders and ridden sleep in the ground, pleasure is gone, the harp is silent, and hope is forgotten. There's that same note you hear in The Wanderer, that other old Anglo-Saxon poem of just total despair, total loss. And that's the note that the poem ends on, though that though not for another, you know, 50 pages or so. Oh, no, I guess it's it's sooner than that. Yeah, not for another 20 pages or so. Uh, when Beowulf is finally killed by the dragon, when all of his warriors have abandoned him except for Wiglaf, and the Swedes are closing in to, uh, to, to finish off uh, the Geats for good. 
anyway, you know, it's a great, it's a great poem. I really enjoyed it. And I, uh, I, I was, I was moved by these, by the depictions, as I said, of the stakes of violence, but it also gave me a little bit of a hunger for good writing about violence itself, because that is, as I said, that's really the, the poem's weak spot. And as, and as Burton Ravel says in his introduction, uh, it's the, you know, it's what the poet gives the least space to, that there's, there's usually in the battles, the before and the after are given far, far, far more lines than the, the battle itself. But I... Uh, found this poem online by Taylor Bias. So Taylor Bias is a super young poet. She was 23 when she published this. This was published in with sometime within the last year, I think. It's called This Kill Bill Scene Has Me Thinking About Weave and Girl Fights. Weave being their artificial hair uh, that's, that's stitched into a woman's real hair to look convincing. So the Kill Bill scene she's thinking about, she's talking about in particular, is it's a great one. It's a fight between uh, Uma Thurman's character, the bride, uh, Beatrix Kiddo, and uh, Lucy Liu's character, Oren Ishii. They fight in a snowy Japanese garden. There's a there's a really great audio. Uh, there's a great there's a really really great aural effect where this a stream runs through a little bamboo spout that that tips up and knocks against itself every once in a while and it's very irregular and so in a fight that is punctuated by long stretches of silence and uh, str- strategic maneuvering uh, followed by you know rapid staccato clashes of the swords there's a uh, there's this very intermittent this calm hollow of the bamboo spout. <laughs> it's super unnerving. And it just gave me an appreciation again for, you know, the many different, the many different uh, dramatic effects uh, that, that, that simple rhythm can achieve. So it's a fight, great sword fight. I'll include a link to it in the show notes, but uh, uh, the, the Uma Thurman uh, finally kills uh, Lucy Liu's character uh, with a Hattori Hanzo, which comes up in the, in the um, poem. Hattori Hanzo is the name of a great swordsmith. So the, the, the Hattori Hanzo is the sword that she uses to fight with. And the, the death stroke she finally gets, uh, Lucy Liu has, you know, uh, uh, beautiful long black hair uh, that's tied up in a bun. And you see a, a stroke that seems to miss her. It seems not to make contact. But then there's this fine spray of blood and and a length of black hair flies through the night air and lands on the snow. And you see that she's actually sliced off the top of Lucy Liu's head. Uh, and and that's the end of the fight. It's very it's very picturesque, it's super stylized, but it's a great fight. And uh, and it ends with this severing of the the scalp and the hair and the, even the top of the skull oh there's also there's a mention in this poem also of world star which uh, refers to world star hip-hop which is a, a, a website that uh, features music videos but also um, you know notorious for uh, for um, sharing videos of you know, shocking, candid, you know, fights and events and, and uh, uh, sorts of, you know, social explosions in which a, a, a bystander might whip out a phone and, and shout world star in, in hopes of capturing this, this uh, uh, you know, moment of, of violence or, 
or uh, or poor judgment <laughs> on film, and then uh, and then achieving notoriety by by sharing it online. So that that's what World Star refers to. To the, to the best of my knowledge, if there are any World Star experts in my audience, then please write in and and clarify for me. But uh, once again, this is this is this Kill Bill scene has me thinking about Weave and Girl Fights by Taylor Bias. The camera lingers for a moment on the black flame of Oren Ishii's hair in the snow, just sheared by the bride's Hattori Hanso. And I think about what it means to draw hair in a fight, to hitch a braid or a track from another woman's scalp. What would our grandmothers say if they knew we'd forsaken the old proverbs? Where is my Vaseline? Or bitch hold my earrings. These days, Victory depends upon grip strength, how well we crook our nails beneath the cornrows, how much we loosen the black thread holding the extensions, the strength of the first tug, drag distance, the size of the hole the asphalt eats into the other girl's jeans. Somebody yells out World Star, starts recording, and the crowd's collective flash is hot as stage lights. Someone's nose is knuckled to spit and blood. A lip bellies around a cut. A black girl's bruises gray under white light. And when they're pulled apart, pieces of themselves left behind on the other's shirt like O-Ren's slit of blood in winter's fresh down, the judges must decide on a loser. The phones record a tracking shot on the clump of hair or braids on the pavement. Zoom in. The cameras linger on the weave yanked from owner and updo, and the crowd's uproar is something like exit music. But we know this is no samurai's death. No one lives this down. God damn, I can't believe she was she was 20 fucking three when she published this. So the, the poem is structured on the page as a kind of a double sonnet with um, 14 lines and then 14 more lines in uh, the... The, the first sort of pseudo sestet being that list of what victory depends on, grip strength, the first the strength of the tug, the drag distance, the size of the hole. So there is a, you know, if a sonnet is a, an asymmetrical matchup, right, between problem and consolation, then this is a sort of a double, a double matchup, a double conflict. Um, it's sort of two fights in one, the girl fight and the, the movie fight of the title. Part of what I find really affecting about this poem is the the clarity and specificity of the violence. The terms are identified really crisply and with great precision and authority, but then there's also a a sort of an aloofness to the tone. It's it's neither it's neither the prurient indifference of you know, the person making the World Star video, nor is it the cinematic, you know, glorification of the Tarantino movie. It's it's something a little bit it's it's almost more bird's eye than that. Uh, the cameras linger on the weave yanked from owner and up do and the crowd's uproar is something like exit music. There's an awareness of how this this convention sort of flirts with s- cinema, but also how it's, it is a, this is a, you know, this is still, an, this is, this is really a conflict. This is an experience uh, undergone by individuals 
who who may even be aware that they're playing into a certain uh, a, a certain narrative trope, but have to live with it all the same. Um, I just think it is so clear and disciplined and it's compassionate without being even remotely sentimental. I'm just I'm, I'm just so impressed by this. And again, it's it's hard to depict violence convincingly, right? Without seeming either sensationalistic or uh, sentimental. So I, I'm, I'm just super impressed by this poem and really, uh, really eager to um, see more from Taylor Bryce. I think her 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 um, chat book, Blood Warm, very much worth reading. You know, it's it's spotty the way that any good book is spotty. But I, you know, for example, I read. I think I talked about this with Alice, uh, Alice or somebody. I read. I can't remember, but I read Alexandra Oliver's book. Alexandra Oliver's much more. You know, she's maybe fifty. She's very well established in Canada. This is her third or fourth book. Uh, it's called Hail the Invisible Watchman. It's really good, meaning that it has like five or six just just like you know fist to the nose knockout punches and then a bunch of really really good enjoyable competent poems and then some forgettable stuff uh, and that's a really good collection and i think i think taylor bryce is already already getting like similar similar um hit, a similar hit rate at an extremely young age so i just hope she keeps growing and developing and, and challenging herself and i think she could be really fucking good uh, by the time she's a young poet, or maybe even by the time she's she's an emerging poet. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll include a link to to this poem in the show notes. Uh, and then for the rest of the episode, I I had a while ago a really good conversation with. A lot of this, by the way, is a little bit. Um, I'm recording this the day before my birthday, but the I had intended to talk about this a few weeks ago when I also recorded a segment on a poem called Kill List. Uh, that segment is on the secret show feed. Now you can listen if you want to slayrickets.substack.com. But, uh, I, I didn't release it because there were, there were so many shootings that, that had really, uh, struck a nerve for people. And, uh, then my, my concept of doing a whole episode about violence felt a little bit, a little bit questionable. So I'm, I'm, I'm releasing this part. I'm, so I'm recording this part now. And then the, the rest of the episode is actually a conversation I had, a few months ago with Brian that was one of my favorite conversations I've had with him. We talked about two short, short stories. We read both of them, or Brian reads both of them aloud in the in the uh, segments. So you can hear the whole thing. So you can hear all of them, uh, and we talk about them some. And it's, I thought, just like a really wonderful conversation I, I, I enjoyed greatly about literature. It's, it's silly and funny the way Brian always is, but it's also just a really good uh, um, I just felt like we, we really got into what makes stories like this work or not work. And they are short enough that they are, I would say they verge on prose poem, or at least some of what we often mean when we say prose poem, especially of the Baudelarian kind. Uh, but I, I totally lost this episode. I totally forgot about it. I thought I had released it, and then it turned out I had not. And Brian checked in and asked me about it, and then I went looking and finally found it. So this is, uh, this was, this is dragged up from the dusty archives, just like I myself am. Uh, and I hope you will really enjoy it. I will say that uh, Brian always asks me to tell him, uh, uh, that, to, let, to let him know when my listeners are sick of him. Uh, and I, as I've told him, uh, I have gotten a lot of very consistent uh, feedback that people love Brian. And in fact, many people much prefer him to me and wish it would just be his podcast <laughs> instead, including my dad. But 
uh, uh, too fucking bad. It's my podcast. But he, he, um, there is one listener who really dislikes Brian. Um, who, who I would just say doesn't dislike Brian, but but uh, but uh, says he finds Brian's episodes the hardest to listen to. And I just want to say to that one listener, because he was very much the minority, just the one person who really seems not to like Brian. But I'll just say to him, to that one listener, I think this is a Brian episode you actually will like. I think the the that um, it is as delightful as Brian always is, but I think in the particular... I just have a suspicion that that if there's if you are if you are one of the one listeners <laughs> who finds uh, Brian style uh, too aggressive or too grating or too mean spirited, I think you're really gonna like this one. But at any rate, um, I, I hope you enjoy this. I'm not going to do a little outro at the end because this is a bonus and I've got other stuff I'm trying to put together and it's my fucking birthday. Uh, but I, I wanted to put something out because it's my it's my birthday present to you and to myself. And I, uh, I will be back later on in the week with a regular episode. Until then, this is Brian and me talking about Incarnations of Burned Children by David Foster Wallace and... The History of Everything, Including You, by Jenny Hollowell. I do have one question about A History of Everything that I want to ask you, because to me, it's like, it it makes the difference between this being a, a fine, n- unremarkable, n- nice little uh, nostalgic story and being a story about a, uh, a totally psychotic dead husband who just completely was a dangerous lunatic. And it's, I think, a okay. question of a punctuation. But I think it's the former, not the latter. But let's... Um, <laughs> okay. All l- right. Let's do whatever you want. I, all right. So let me say... It's a story. I, I then like looked up a bunch of other stuff. So this is a story, um, uh, a, a short history of everything, including you, by Jenny Hollowell, that was featured in Radio Lab. Uh, um, featured by in Radio Lab on my suggestion. So oh, was it? We, yeah, you no, I'm, I'm, show, uh, Wheeler? I am the number one uh, podcast. You're the the wheel greaser yeah. of a history of everything, including you. This will oh, be the okay. second prominent second podcast. podcast. You, it will that that I have you, gotten. Do you get Je- Jenny Hollowell on? Getting you getting royalties? Is this? No, uh, I I'm getting nothing. I just have to keep on reading this story, which I think is good. I, I like it more than you like it. I think it's flawed. Yes. I think it has two exquisite moments um and i think otherwise it's kind of dopey but i think two exquisite moments in four and pages is, one, a, yeah, is a massive success that's, that's pretty good okay so it was the book it was featured in came out in 20 2007 and then it presumably was written shortly before that and then it, it got like featured in a lot of stuff you sent me a version on the phone and because i'm bad at phones i couldn't read that very well and so i wanted to read it on the computer I looked it up to see if I could find a copy of it online. Can you guess the website I found it online? <laughs> it's not LitHub, is it? No, it was. Okay. It's a, is it Radiolab dot something? No, it's Jonathan Roberts page, uh, a webpage, Blue Photo Wedding Photography. And it's an all <laughs> italics version of the story. How would I have, I, uh, there's no way I could have guessed that. That's too <laughs> That's difficult true. to guess. That That's was true. A, but it, it, tough? It, it, it lends if there was not already a veneer of, of sentimentality to it, it, it certainly l- lends it one. Yeah, it's, I think it's I think it's a fine story. I think like there was a period when like, so like this came out and then in 2008, Synecdoche, New York came out and then in, uh, and then like 
Up came out uh, in 2009. Oh, okay. I see, I see what you're doing. And, okay. uh, and then The Tree of Life and The History of Everything and The, and the Entire History of You came out in 2011. I don't so know what that is. What's The Entire History of You? It's, the, it's an episode of Black Mirror in which a guy uh, has a memory device in his brain and his wife has one too and he ends up like shattering their marriage over like right. trying I, to go back through memories of things but then in i think the end, i saw like that only, one it's like memories of all that matters and he kind of they like whiz through their life together and then they rip it out and he's all left with nothing so it's it, like every episode of black mirror true yeah but, it, but it, the pig it, fucking my, one my yeah my, my, my um pig fucking one distinct is that is it that one's a little yeah. different than almost and others. i think um, the worst but a conversation the pig fucking one, i thought that was yeah. great that was a great Oh, I didn't yeah, get so it. Great. I don't. I didn't get it's, it. I don't think right. it was a. It was not the smartest, but I thought it was a. It was good TV. Um, yeah, it was good TV. Uh, but the. Um, uh, but it seemed like like when I was, I, I kept thinking like part of what I think I don't love about this story is that it feels familiar, and it might be that this was the first instance, but it seems like there was a. I was going through personally. I was going through an existential crisis during this time, like during this like 2007 to 2011 period. But it seems like maybe the whole country was as well, because there are all these stories and, and movies and things that kind of have the same little move they keep making. Um, this is the move. And this is the move. First, there was God or gods or nothing. Then synthesis, space, the expanse, explosions, implosions, particles, objects, combustion, and fusion. Out of the chaos came order, stars were born and shone and died, planets rolled across their galaxies on invisible ellipses, and the elements combined and became. Life evolved or was created. Cells trembled and divided and gasped and found dry land. Soon they grew legs and fins and hands and antennae and mouths and ears and wings and eyes. Eyes that opened wide to take all of it in. The creeping, growing, soaring, swimming, crawling, stampeding universe. Eyes opened and closed and opened again. We called it blinking. Above us shone a star that we called the sun and we called the ground the earth, so we named everything, including ourselves. We were man and woman, and when we got lonely, we figured out a way to make more of us. We called it sex, and most people enjoyed it. We fell in love, we talked about God and banged stones together, made sparks and called them fire. We got warmer and the food got better, we got married, we had some children. They cried and crawled and grew. One dissected flowers, sometimes eating the petals, another liked to chase squirrels. We fought wars over money and honor and women. We starved ourselves. We hired prostitutes. We purified our water. We compromised, decorated, and became esoteric. One of us stopped breathing and turned blue, then others. First, we covered them with leaves, and then we buried them in the ground. We remembered them. We forgot them. We aged. Our buildings kept getting taller. We hired lawyers, informed councils, and left paper trails. We negotiated. We admitted. We got sick and searched for cures. We invented lipstick, vaccines, Pilates, solar panels, interventions, table manners, firearms, window treatments, therapy, birth control, tailgating, status symbols, palimony, sportsmanship, focus group, Zoloft, sunscreen, landscaping, Cessnas, fortune cookies, chemotherapy, convenience foods, and computers. We angered militants and our mothers. You were born. So I'm going to stop reading there because I think that's the move that you're referring to, right? Where you take a, a universe and a universal beginning to everything, and then you narrow it down until you get, in this case, the second person you, but in all the cases, some kind of individual. Yes. And then the other part of the move is, um, it's really me, it's two moves. It's, it's that like us in the context of the whole cosmos. And then it's also uh, our personal relationship 
in the context of our entire relationship whizzed through very quickly. Um, I thought I, I forgot another example, which I actually like a lot, which is, I can't remember the name, but you will remember it. Stephen Dixon's very good, even shorter story about his wife that tells the story of their marriage backwards. Yeah. I mean, that's like seven or 12 Stephen Dixon stories, but oh, yes, I, yeah, but the, yeah, he has yeah. one but, but, that but was like does mentioned that in his obit or something that I thought yeah. was wonderful. Yeah. Where he, he reads it. The, the, he goes through the entire life. I mean, there's one Stephen Dixon novel that's just telling the same story. I think 18 different times of kids getting hit by a car. Like D Dixon gets obsessive in that way. And again, strongly recommend you, anybody who hasn't read Dixon, read Dixon once, and then you'll know whether you want to keep on reading Dixon. But the second move Matthew refers to is after you were born, period. You learned to walk and went to school and played sports and lost your virginity and got into a decent college and majored in psychology and went to rock shows and became political and got drunk and changed your major to marketing and wore turtleneck sweaters and read novels and volunteered and went to movies and developed a taste for blue cheese dressing. I met you through friends and didn't like you at first. The feeling was mutual, but we got used to each other. We had sex for the first time behind an art gallery, standing up and slightly drunk. You held my face in your hands and said that I was beautiful. And you were too, tall with the streetlight behind you. We went back to your place and listened to the White Album. We ordered in. We fought and made up and got good jobs and got married and bought an apartment and worked out and ate more and talked less. I got depressed. You ignored me. I was sick of you. You drank too much and got careless with money. I slept with my boss. We went into counseling and got a dog. I bought a book of sex positions and we tried the least degrading one, the wheelbarrow. You took flight lessons and subscribed to Rolling Stone. I learned Spanish and started gardening. We had some children who more or less disappointed us, but it might have been our fault. You were too indulgent and I was too critical. We loved them anyway. One of them died before we did, stabbed on the subway. We grieved, we moved, we adopted a cat. The world seemed uncertain. We lived beyond our means. I got judgmental and belligerent. You got confused and easily tired. You ignored me. I was sick of you. We forgave, we remembered, we made cocktails, we got tender. There was that time on the porch when you said, can you believe it? This was near the end and your hands were trembling. I think you were talking about everything, including us. Did you want me to say it so that it would not be lost? It was too much for me to think about. I could not go back to the beginning. I said, not really. And we watched the sun go down. A dog kept barking in the distance and you were tired, but you smiled and you said, hear that? It's rough, rough. And we laughed. You were like that. Now your question is my project and our house is full of clues. I'm reading old letters and turning over rocks. I bury my face in your sweater. I study a photograph taken at the beach, the sun in our eyes and the water behind us. It's a victory to remember the forgotten picnic basket and your striped beach blanket. It's a victory to remember how the jellyfish stung you and you ran screaming from the water. It's a victory to remember dressing the wound with meat tenderizer and you saying I made it better. I will tell you this, standing on our hill this morning, I looked at the land we chose for ourselves I saw a few green patches in our sweet little shed. That same dog was barking. A storm was moving in. I did not think of heaven, but I saw that the clouds were beautiful and I watched them cover the sun. Yeah, it's, it is a well done version of itself. I have a, a, a few questions about it, but since you know it longer and better and, and maybe have a stronger relationship to it, what's your, what's your thought? 
So my thought, I, I have a couple thoughts on it, and the reasons why I think it stands out from among a lot of the uh, comparable works uh, that, that you mentioned. One is I think the tone is almost right. There, there are a couple missteps. Blue cheese dressing feels like a punchline and doesn't land. And I, there are one or two other moments that... The, the wheelbarrow? Yeah, I mean, like that, how that, degrading were all of the positions in the sex book that that was the least degrading one? Right, exactly. It, it doesn't sort of think through its own implication. And and again, any time that she gets to set up and punchline, I, I think it doesn't quite work. But I think the rest of this works uh, particularly well because of the lack of, of set up and punchline. There are just we angered militants and our mothers. I think is a very calm joke. It's a very sort of soft way to tell this story in a both sort of large scale and small scale way. But I think what this has, which most of the other examples don't, is a reason for its being, mm -hmm. where you have the line, there was that time on the porch when you said, can you believe it? And then she goes and she thinks about it as her husband, presumably husband, is at the end of, of his life. And he asks that question, which is an unanswerably large question, sincerely. And she tries to figure out what he's talking about and then she goes back to it in the next paragraph and says now your question is my project and our house is full of clues what what does that meter is that a project and our house is full of clues three sorry it's three yeah no it's three unaccented and one accented no that's not even like Dr. Seuss. That's like um you could call it one two three four one two three four one two three four one two three and I don't I, I don't I don't know what that is, but it it it, yeah. it has a it like Pyrrhic I am I don't I mean yeah it has a lovely musicality to me and it just it makes the the rest of the piece make sense. So once she remembers towards the end of this guy's life, him saying like, "Can you believe it?" in, in that sort of existential needy way, and then she's like trying to answer the question, and in that she she goes on a hunt trying to to answer it, you know? So she's reading old letters and turning over rocks and burying yeah. her face in his sweaters and taking that story all the way to the very beginning in order to try to, to tell an answer, in order to, to try to come up with an answer to that question. And I feel the combination of a, of a mixed register of sort of religious and scientific vocabulary, but, but none of it in an ostentatious way with the mission of the piece sort of well articulated in the piece itself, I, I think she does a, a really good job in a very uh, small amount of space. But what's your, what are your concerns? A part of me, it's, and this may just be the the myopia of being, uh, is that how you say myopia? My, the, sh the short sightedness of both being work. the age I am and ha like having small kids right now. But part of me wondered like, how the hell is this not a story about your child a dead, a dead kid i know i know that's because like that means the it. kid was not even like like my grandmother lost a child who was like no. four and it's she like it stuck with her her whole life and she had like seven other children i know and, and this is a kid who was grew up enough to be like like at least a teenager at least, no, like, that's presumably. the that's the big that's the big problem that like it's, how could it's you not, listed how, how is that not everything to this so the other so the other way to to read this and and the way that i can make sense of that in the, and I think that this is probably making an excuse on behalf of Ms. Hollowell, sure, but yeah. but it's the best I can do, which is like this entire story is just about mourning the 
husband and the kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's trying to contextualize all of it. Right. And that, of course, it could be about everything could be about the murdered child. But in trying to yeah. contextualize that, it maybe feels less life-defining or or less significant if it is within this framework of like life was hard but it was full of stuff and you took up gardening and i learned spanish and our kid died and we grieved you know like there, there is that sentence we grieved and i yeah. i it, it's a it's an easy flaw to to attack because i agree that sure. especially where you you and i are in life right now reading a story where a kid dies and that is just like one in a list of things it feels it farcical and inhumane and, like, and and right right like it's just it's too much it's yeah. it's we think about our own lives if one of our kids adopted was a stabbed <laughs> on a subway you know and right, it's yeah. like right i it's impossible like none but i i think to read this with either the amount of generosity it deserves sure, or too much course. generosity yeah, yeah, yeah. is to say that that's what this story is about. It's, it's about losing a spouse after losing a son and trying to make sense of, of all of it, of yeah. both of those things. I, I mean, I, I, I like, I thought the, the last sentence is, is quite nice. I did not think of heaven, but I saw that the, that the clouds were beautiful and I watched them cover the sun. And that's of course an example of like using you all you need to do is say you did not think of heaven and of course we'll think of heaven but it but it like it it refuses any kind of easy consolation there i do think that probably in in like an an inversion of our disagreement last week or not last week but a couple weeks i can't remember when it was where like i thought something was a was a um was designating uncertainty and you thought it was designating inclusion i think that the two or moments which are the first sentence first there was god or gods were nothing and life evolved or was created I think those are probably intended to to convey uncertainty, but I think they instead convey inclusion, and I think that's a mistake. Like it's much more point. I mean, part of what's so poignant about the story is that it is a it is a general and broad story told through specifics. And that's, what's the difference between inclusion and uncertainty in this case? Uh, First, there was God or gods or nothing, and meaning, then the next time life evolved like, or because, was created. Part, partly, it's I think because it's the first sentence. It's it, we're like we're learning what kind of story we're reading with that sentence. Yes. And so one possibility, of course, would be who the fuck knows what happened, but something right. was in the beginning, and that's I think what she probably intends. But because we're talking about this big picture in the beginning stuff you're also sort of necessarily addressing all the people who have very strong opinions about what that was. And so right. it reads as inclusion, like you're welcome and you are too. But that I think is a, I think that's actually a weak foot to start the story on. Right. Especially if you're going to end on heaven and right. not thinking of heaven. It's, it's yeah. hard to, to know what to make of the, there was God or gods or nothing. And then I did not think of heaven, which is a similar move, but a very different one. Right. Because, because, and it's also, it's so specific. It's like right. she makes that choice herself there. One of the reasons why I suggested we read this along with David Foster Wallace's Incarnation of Burned Children is because both stories end with a similar image of the sun rising um, or moving above this scene of of mourning and, and loss. I guess if you're in for a penny, we might as well be in for a pound. Do you have it can, in yet for me quickly, to read this? Can I quickly ask you my one ridiculous question about this story? Of course, please. Yep. So, so 
I, because the version I have on this um, wedding photography website has lots of misspellings in it, I'm assuming it's not. Her he just version. transcribed the story. He was like listening to Radiolab and I typing think as fast so. as he could. I think he did. I think that's exactly because okay. he, he like he cites the Radiolab reference at the time. Oh no! So, so I think he transcribed it and like misspelled shown and misspelled busy and or Barry. He misspelled a bunch of words. So I'm, it was like, well, I mean that. I mean, in a way, I was glad because like, okay, so this isn't her copy, but. But then um, he, so he, he punctuates, and the punctuation doesn't matter mostly because most of the story is just and, 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 and. But there's this moment where uh, in the last paragraph, um, it's a victory to remember treating the wound. So he got, the, the husband got stung by a jellyfish and screamed and ran up on the, the water, ran up, ran up uh, on the sand. And let me just interrupt quickly to say, I know it's cornery, but I like the three victories. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I actually. It's a I, victory to remember the forgotten picnic basket and your striped beach blanket. It's a victory to remember how the jellyfish stung you and ran screaming from the water. It's no, a victory you to ran remember. screaming from the water. The jellyfish did not run screaming from the water. That would no. be. I think it's that question about inclusion or sort of ambiguity. <laughs> I do love the, the jellyfish screaming. <laughs> I just stung my body. I just stung my body. That's my jellyfish voice. Yeah. And then the last one is it's a victory to remember treating the wound with meat tenderizer and you saying I made it better. So question yes if so so in his in this misspelled version yes. as well as and I, I because i was curious i watched a video of her reading this okay when she read it in his misspelled version he says and you saying comma i made it better and in her version when she read it she pauses as if there's a comma there and you saying i made it better now here's the distinction if the husband said to the wife in quotation marks you my wife made this better by 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 putting meat tenderizer on it. Thank you for yes. helping me. Yes, that it seems clear sane, that's what it. That's like that a scene. Seems clearly, what happens? Yeah. If, however, that comma is there, or the pause that suggests the comma, and what he said was in quotation marks, "I made it better." After she, <laughs> oh, and he's saying, an insane man. He is a dangerous saying, lunatic. Yeah. He should divorce him immediately. He's like, he's like a five-year-old. Like, like, mommy, you put meat tenderizer on my foot. I made it better. I really just thought like, oh my god, is she married to no. some, like, a, no. like someone who's like a like a, yeah. a railroad spike went through no. his frontal lobe? So there, <laughs> like, there's no there's no punctuation at all in the sentence. Okay, good. All right. It's okay, a victory that, to remember. Dress. There's no comma, word. no semicolon. It's no. A marriage between I made, two, just, two like sane, like lucid adults. I love I love those two final sentences. One of it has a jellyfish uh, <laughs> jumping up and running out of the water and the other one has the, the old man saying that he made himself better because she put the i made it better honey look at me i made it better yeah but no i think i think overall it is a lovely story i think i think i got too i got too many versions of the story that were written later one other version that occurs to me that was written before this that actually is quite similar in some ways and maybe maybe um poison the well a little bit with when it comes to the child is the the wonderful long long short story story of your life by ted chang which is what the movie that. of Arrival was based on, but it's the story is very different than the movie, and it is all addressed in the second person to a dead child. Um, so it it has and it has this sort of sweep to it. Yeah, um, interesting. Uh, and that was written about ten years before. Mm. Send me that story. I'd love to read it. I will. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, let's be in for a penny and for a pound. So so you also recommended this story, Incarnations of Burned Children by David Frost Wells, which I had read before and been haunted by <laughs> yeah so th this story and th this again I'm, I'm 
I guess I am a fan of trigger warnings. I was about to say I'm not a fan of trigger warnings, but I think that like I am a fan of trigger For, warnings. Yeah. Um, I think there's no reason not to warn people when you're yeah. going to do something that might mess them up. Um, so I read this story as a as a more vulnerable person. And I'm, I'm going to oversell it purposefully so mm-hmm. it won't yeah. affect you to the extent it was. But I read it on the subway and my whole body was shaking. Oh, I remember God. being in public and my body shaking. It was shortly after I had my first kid. Um, yeah. And... I mean, David Foster Wallace is a really complicated guy. I, I, I don't know enough about him to discuss him in, in general. I, I came to this story, I brought it up with Matthew because it also opens up a variety of uh, horrifying issues and questions that we can we can delve into. But um, so we came to the David Foster Wallace from the short essay, and then we came to the Hollywell through the Foster Wallace because I associated the two endings together and because they're about the same length. But in order to properly discuss the David Foster Wallace, I think um, we should read it. And a bad thing happens to a kid. So yeah. if, if, you, if you don't want to hear a bad thing happening to a kid, I totally respect that. Anything else before I read it and we discuss it? No, but but like except like whether you have had a kid or not when you first read the story, I think makes a big difference. Just like whether you had a kid or not when you see the movie Mother by Darren Aronofsky. Yes, makes, which yes. you should not see. Which yes, I, no, I know I've been told yeah. that, and I yeah. won't. Yeah. Incarnations of Burn Children by David Foster Wallace. The daddy was around the side of the house, hanging a door for the tenant, when he heard the child screams and the mommy's voice gone high between them. He could move fast, and the back porch gave onto the kitchen, and before the screen door had banged shut behind him, the daddy had taken the scene in whole, the overturned pot on the floor tile before the stove, and the burner's blue jet, and the floor's pool of water still steaming as its many arms extended. The toddler in his baggy diaper standing rigid with steam coming off his hair and his chest and shoulders scarlet and his eyes rolled up and mouth open very wide and seeming somehow separate from the sound that issued. The mommy down on one knee with the dish rag dabbing pointlessly at him and matching the screams with cries of her own, hysterical so she was almost frozen. Her one knee and the bare little soft feet were still in the steaming pool, and Daddy's first act was to take the child under the arms and lift him away from it and take him to the sink where he threw out plates and struck the tap to let cold well water run over the boy's feet. While with his cupped hand, he gathered and pour or flung cold water over his head and shoulders and chest, wanting first to see the steam stop coming off him, the mommy over his shoulder invoking God until he sent her for towels and gauze if they had it, the daddy moving quickly and well, and his man's mind empty of everything but purpose, not yet aware of how smoothly he moved, or that he'd ceased to hear the high screams, because to hear them would freeze them and make impossible what had to be done to help his child, whose screams were regular as breath and went on so long they'd already become a thing in the kitchen, something else to move quickly around." The tenant's side door outside hung half off its top hinge and moved slightly with the wind, and a bird in the oak across the driveway appeared to observe the door with a cocked head as the cries still came from inside. 
The worst skulls seemed to be the right arm and shoulder, the chest and stomach's red was fading to pink under the cold water, and his feet's soft soles weren't blistered that the daddy could see, but the toddler still made little fists and screamed, except now merely on reflex from fear the dad would know he thought possible later. Small face distended and already vain standing out at the temples, and the daddy kept saying he was here, he was here, adrenaline ebbing and an anger at the mommy for allowing this thing to happen, just starting to gather in wisps at the mind's extreme rear still hours from expression. When the mommy returned, he wasn't sure whether to wrap the child in a towel or not, but he wet the towel down and did, swaddled him tight and lifted his baby out of the sink and set him on the kitchen table's edge to soothe him while the mommy tried to check the feet's soles with one hand, waving around in the area of her mouth and uttering objectless words while the daddy bent in and was face to face with the child on the table's checkered edge, repeating the fact that he was here and trying to calm the toddler's cries, but still the child breathlessly screamed a high, pure, shining sound that could stop his heart and his bitty lips and gums now tinged with the light blue of a low flame, the daddy thought, screaming as if almost still under the tilted pot in pain. A minute two like this that seemed much longer with the mommy and the daddy's side talking sing-song at the child's face and the lark on the limb with its head to the side and the hinge going white on a line from its weight in the canted door until the first wisp of steam came lazy from under the wrapped towel's hem and the parent's eyes met and widened the diaper which when they open the towel and lean their little boy back on the checkered cloth and unfasten the softened tabs and tried to remove it resisted slightly with new cries and was hot their baby's diaper burned their hand and when they saw where the water had fallen and pooled and been burning into their baby all this time while he screamed for them to help him and they hadn't hadn't thought and when they got it off and saw the state of what was there the mommy said their god's first name and grabbed the table to keep her feet while the father turned away and threw a haymaker at the air in the kitchen and cursed both himself and the world for not the last while his child might now have been sleeping if not for the rate of his breathing and the tiny stricken motions of his hand in the air above where he lay, hands the size of a grown man's thumb that clutched the daddy's thumb in the crib where he'd watch the daddy's mouth move in song, his head cocked and seeming to see way past him into something his eyes made the daddy lonesome for in a sideways way. If you've never wept and want to, have a child. Break your heart inside and something will a child is the twangy song the daddy hears again, as if the radio ladies was almost there with him, looking down at what they've done. Though hours later, what the daddy most won't forgive is how badly he wanted a cigarette right then as they diapered the child as best they could in gauze and two crossed hand towels. And the daddy lifted him like a newborn with his skull in one palm and ran him out to the hot truck and burned custom rubber all the way to town and the clinic's ER with the tenant's door hanging open like that all day until the hinge gave. But by then, it was too late. When it wouldn't stop, and they couldn't make it, the child had learned to leave himself and watch the whole rest unfold from a point overhead. And whatever was lost never thenceforth mattered, and the child's body expanded and walked about and drew pay and lived its life untenanted, a thing among things, 
itself soul so much vapor aloft falling as rain and then rising the sun up and down like a yo-yo jesus christ is it just that if you write a story about a baby's genitals burned off it will be powerful i mean i think that's it's hard to overstate the importance of the subject when that is the subject like i think that does a whole lot but i also think he just manages the scene and the telling really really well and he gets the thoughts in the right order right there's like the fear and then the action and then anger with his wife and then caring again and then realizing the level of severity and then blaming himself. It's just like he hits all the notes in what to me feels like the right chronology with the right pace. Mm -hmm. And I think the length of the sentences helps. I I, I think that it it makes the moment feel less interrupted. If I'm, if I'm not wrong, this is a single paragraph. Yeah. It's, it's one long paragraph, one long moment. Um, on a craft level, I'm curious what you think about the, uh, the the tenant's door and why we return to that, why we begin there and then are distracted by it in the middle mm. and then return towards the end. I mean, my my answer is something along the lines of like needing to ground this moment in some sort of external reality or else the intensity yeah. would be in a vacuum and and the the comparing the quotidian with the life-changing moment makes a life-changing moment more severe but i i don't know whether there's there's something i'm missing well i think that's right i I also think that the father is somebody very concerned with physical craft and and action and he's you you see this in how he responds to the child in crisis he's very practical he's very hands-on and he's also somebody who he's doing this maintenance work for the tenant himself and my guess is that he's somebody who sort of who who cares about doing that well and so you see as the door hangs on this sort of yeah. half a yeah, fixed yeah, yeah. hinge and you see it folding and increasing and, and straining you see a job uh that he presumably cares about and would under any other circumstance be frustrated at failing you know that you see this job slowly become irredeemably fucked up and it's and it's a it's sort of like it's like a a sort of Damocles or a or an hourglass where you're like you see this process going right. and the stakes right. are so right 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 much it's a like, way to buy time right, right. but they're also like they're unfathomably Mark lower time, not buy time so you're right. like you're watching right. something be irredeemably ruined that matters almost not at all compared to what we're really concerned about and so I think it it's a it, yeah I think it's pretty skillful I also was was just struck again by one of the most like like heartbreaking words in the whole story and just I think really smart is the word lazy he says yeah. he, he watched the, the lark on the limb with its head to the side and the hinge going white in a line from the weight of the cant of the canted door until the first wisp of steam came lazy from under the wrapped towels hat. oh my god yeah yeah After yeah and then going, going all of this like frantic business yep. and work and care just that it's just, it's just been casually doing this the whole time yeah. lazy just right he's missing the the point he's right. missing Everything the story is, this yeah. entire time 
Um, yeah, and I mean, and he does like so many smart little things where they he, he they put him in the sink, but he specifically lets you know that they're like rinsing the feet and not like dunking water he, over his whole head. Uh, they and then they do, I mean, the dad not being able to have any reaction at all, so the, he threw a haymaker yeah, in the air of the like kitchen. Such, like it's just I wouldn't have thought of that word. Like it's right. just so right. It's it's the way yeah. that he uh, is is demonstrating masculine impotence. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. punching the air, and it's just it. And yeah, they're, and it, they're in that like terrible, terrible moment when you see in the intensity of the um, the child's reaction. God, where's the line? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Screaming as if almost still under the tilted pot in pain, where you yeah. you're seeing like you see what's happening, but we don't know yet how it's happening. Um, yeah, I mean it is it is just as you know, like you have a really big bullet to fire in this story with right the, exactly but he yes. fires it pretty flawlessly what do you make of what he does which is an acceleration through the rest of this burned baby's life at the end in comparison to what hollowell does with the more protracted beginning because it's a it's a different move but it's a similar one where yeah. you know we go from if if this is three thousand words or something you know like 50 at the end are about how well, yeah, the child this isn't even 3,000 words I mean, this is like a thousand yeah, yeah, thousand, yeah. The, maybe. yeah. the um, child learned to leave himself and watch the whole rest unfold from a point overhead and whatever was lost was never hence never thenceforth mattered and the child's body expanded is that too is that line that is is that too look at me the, the the child's body expanded or are you cool with it uh i think it's okay i mean i think it, it's so impersonal and sort of gross yeah. and like i mean he yeah. that it does feel like he's yeah the kid is removed from his yes body. a mean, thing among like, things itself's soul so much vapor aloft that's good writing no i mean and it, and it does it have like it's a very similar move but it sort of has the either like an opposite effect or the same effect in reverse where like what you do when you have a particular moment of like this woman whose whose husband has died and his son has died looking up at the sky if you take that moment and you lo load it up with an entire life then that moment becomes incredibly poignant and what he does here is you have this one moment in which everything exactly. matters right. and then he stretches out the rest of the life and you're like and nothing matters the whole rest of the life is emptied of all meaning because of the intensity of this one moment um the sun up and down like a yo-yo jesus so a, a question that has always nagged me about this story if on the dumbest level, the title. I mean, it is about a story. It definitely is a story about a burned child. What? What is the what? Why is it plural? Doesn't, doesn't David Foster Wallace just have crazy titles? Isn't that the answer? Yeah, but he often has really good title, like really good crazy titles. And this just feels like a. I mean, it's it's. This is a striking title. Like if you see this in a table of contents, you say like, oh fuck, what is this? But then it just seems like an so odd. incarnations means multiple lives of right right. And then burn multiple children of multiple children. But this seems like just a single life of a single child. But, but, and like, and, and where I'll give him, like, in his defense, incarnation of a burned child is just a bad, dumb title. Yeah. Yeah. It would, so, it would be the burned child. The right? burned child. Like that, yeah. That, um, that's what the, the that story would be. That would be a, yeah, like a straight, should a, be straight called, ahead title. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, incarnations just, i remember he, re hearing that like once um uh james taylor played 
a, a guitar solo on a Beatles track, and they like I see fire, I see rain. I mean, did that guy, James Taylor? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which also, by the way, because he also has a song that begins something in the way, uh, uh, George Harrison just stole that from him. Oh, is that true? Stole, yeah. Like, they were friends. He was like, I just like that. I'm going to do a more famous (laughs) song with that. Um, But so he played a a solo for for a a track of theirs, and they said, like, "Uh, we like it, but we need it to sound more Beatles-y. And so they had him play it into a fan. So it would be like, (laughs) just to, like, make it. And in a way, like, I feel like making it plural is just like, let's just make it a little more DFW. Um, but yeah, totally. I mean, so, yeah, they're ag- so well, again, like, fuck it, the title. Who cares? But yeah, well, like I could, I, I could give you an answer, right? Sure. Like, yeah. like the, the reason why it's incarnations of burned children is the same reason why it's the daddy and the mommy, as opposed right. to giving it Jennifer and Ben. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it sort of stands in for the whole of how we fuck up our kids, you know, and our decisions matter or something. And there's I, like just it, the one, there's the father, always, right? There's only that one time where we see father yes. instead of daddy. Yeah. Which is when he throws the yeah, hammer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, yeah, he, yeah, sure. Who cares about the title? But yeah. Um, Jesus. Well, we did that. We did it. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Always good to end uh, on a high note. Oh, it's fun. Fun hanging out. Yeah. Um, go hug we'll, your kids for me. We'll and I can't wait to see time. how you edit this. Yeah.